Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of opportunity. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about how to work and or study in Japan. Because Japan is a great place to visit as a tourist, but maybe you're interested in spending an extended period of time there. In that case, studying or working in Japan might be for you. Wait, you can do that? It's possible. There are several ways that you can do either of those things. Why did I never do that? I don't know, Paul. Because I had other adventures in my life. I seriously considered it for a while when I was younger. But uh, other things came up. No regrets. Yeah, we, we've each had a lot of adventures, many of them together. Yep. And, uh, I, you know, I actually applied to the JET program at one point. Really? Yeah. Didn't hear back. Okay. But, uh, yeah, there are a lot of different options depending on what exactly you want to do with your time in Japan. And we're going to talk about those options. Yeah, so one option is obviously studying in Japan. There are about 140,000 international students in Japan from 170 countries and or regions in the world. Nice. That's a lot of, that's a lot of students. It is. And that, that's across all the different types of schools, right? So we have a few we're going to talk about here. That's just at higher educational institutions. So I think that's like universities. Okay. So Japan is consistently ranked in the top 10 countries in the world for education. So it's a good place to go if you want to uh, get some of that education. And Japanese universities are the first option that we're going to talk about. Yeah. The majority of the students are actually from China and Vietnam, which kind of makes sense, the proximity there and the number of students in China. Yep. So Japanese universities offer four-year undergraduate programs, two-year graduate programs, and three- to four-year doctoral programs, much like American universities, right? Yep. And there are actually three types of universities in Japan. You got national universities, public universities, and private universities. The national ones actually used to be run by the national government. Did you know that? No. Kind of makes sense, I guess. In yeah. A way. But in 2004, they were all partially privatized. So now they are... Now they well, can raise tuition every year? No, sorry. <laughs> the too, too real. Too USA there. Yeah. Yeah. That is quite an American thing. What were you going to say? Sorry. Uh, that's okay. So they're now national university corporations. So, I mean, there's more potential maybe for... Yeah. I don't know. Just hearing that like unsettles me. Yeah. But who? maybe they're making it work. Yeah. Uh, so then they have public universities. Those were founded by prefectures and municipalities. Okay. And, and then you got the private universities that are, of course, privately run. Okay. Now, the vast majority of universities in Japan are private. 88.7% of the schools are private. Okay. But, get this, most of the top 10 schools in the country are the national universities. Oh. Yeah. And uh, a lot of those best schools are also research institutions that contribute a lot to the sciences. Okay. Get that funding. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned how good these schools are. Other reasons that students choose to come study in Japan is because it's a safe society. 
There's really good public transportation, which is probably nice when you're a student. There's the fascinating culture, obviously. Of course. And to improve their Japanese language skills that maybe help them with life or business later down the road. I saw one study by a group uh, inside Japan for students. It was a student group of international students about their experience in Japan. And the question was, what was your impression of studying in Japan? And the answers were good, not good, couldn't say, and not clear. Almost 91% good. And only 1.1% not good. The rest were all couldn't say or not clear. Hmm. Sounds like you have a good chance of having a good experience. Yeah, at least 9 out of 10 uh, good experiences are happening. Nice. Another thing that can be appealing about Japanese universities, depending on what country you're coming from, is that tuition is not that expensive, especially compared to the United States. Although maybe that's not saying a whole lot, right? (laughs) Yeah. There are a ton of good schools here in the U.S., but man, can you afford them? Maybe, maybe not. You might just spend the rest of your life paying off that education. But we're not here to talk about the United States. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we got to stop going down that road. So as an example, the University of Tokyo, it's ranked as one of the best schools, not just in Japan, but in all of Asia. And tuition for a year is only around 5,000 US dollars. Oh, man. Isn't that insane? Oh, dude, you could could just like make that work in a part-time job. Yeah. So that is pretty cool. But maybe not quite as cool as the countries where higher education is free. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it does sound like they have a bit less inequality in education than in the U.S., at least. Yeah, definitely. And there are also scholarships available to international students. Yeah, I saw that too. All levels of government have scholarships that they offer. So, you know, just look around. You can apply at the municipal level, at the national level. Definitely worth looking for. I kind of like that. Like, get the best and brightest from around the world to come study in your country and learn your language. And that's a, that's a cool thing. Yeah. Did you see anything about the selectiveness of Japanese universities? Yes. There's an examination that you usually have to take to get into a Japanese university. And there's a special test for international students called the EJU. Um, And it's difficult, supposedly. I haven't tried it. And there's exchange programs, too. So if you're already enrolled in a university, you might not have to take a test to be able to go spend a semester or two in Japan. Mm -hmm. And as for acceptance rates, it seems to be fairly comparable to the U.S. Most schools have acceptance rates between 10 to 50%. Okay. Another thing to note, if you want to study at a university in Japan, is that the school year doesn't line up with the school year in the U.S. I don't know about other countries, but the Japanese school year starts in April and then ends in March. So you don't have that three-month-long summer break in there, but you have a first term that's April to mid-July, and then there's a summer break, and then second term is early September to the end of December. Then you got a winter break, And then you got that final term from the beginning of January to March. Okay. And from what I saw, most programs at these schools are taught in Japanese, which would make sense. Yep. So 
you know, if you want to do a full-time education, your full four-year degree or something in Japan, you'll want to have a good grasp of the language, of course. But these days, a lot of universities also offer some classes in English. So what a lot of people do is some sort of study abroad program through their foreign university. Like there might be a university in your country that offers this specific program where you can go to Japan for a semester or something. And if you're going to do that, you'll only be taking English classes. And it sounds like most schools just have a few programs in English focusing on international studies or social science or, you know, you can just get some of your generals out of the way while you're, you know, having fun exploring Japanese culture and experiencing that kind yeah. of lifestyle. Yeah, stack up some credits. Mm-hmm. I saw there's a few universities that do entire degree programs in English. Really? Not many, but there's, there's a couple out there. Cool. So if you do one of these study abroad programs, they are probably going to be more expensive than enrolling directly with the Japanese university. But it does make it a lot easier, of course, because you're going to have your foreign school to kind of support you through that whole thing. You know, they're going to get you set up. They might provide housing for you. And you'll have a community of other study abroad students to kind of get acclimated and have some people to hang out with if you don't speak the, the language. So it's okay if you're not doing university studies. There's other things you can study in Japan. Or if you need to brush up on your Japanese before then going to university, there's a bunch of language schools in Japan that teach you Japanese as a foreigner. So some of the people are just learning Japanese before rolling in, enrolling into university. Some of people are learning Japanese for business reasons. They've even got special classes tailored to teach you Japanese for business. So it teaches you a lot of the terms and things you would need to talk business with someone. Cool. Yeah, that is kind of cool, right? Yeah, definitely. So there are a lot of different options for how you want to study the language and how long you want to study the language. There are shorter programs of between 2 to 12 weeks, or you could sign up for a long-term one if you're really dedicated to getting fluent. Yeah, in Japan, they have a series of tests that will certify you to different levels of your understanding of Japanese. And it can be a really big deal, especially if you're looking for jobs later in Japan, to have those certificates saying, like, I am this good at Japanese. So these schools will prepare you for those exams, too. Right. You're talking about the JLPT. Yeah. The Japanese Language Proficiency Test. So it's standardized. They administer this all over the world. You can take it no matter where you are. And you don't even need to take class to take it. Like you could just study on your own and take this test. There are five levels. There's N5, which is the easiest. It's kind of a beginner level Japanese. And then N1 is the hardest, like basically total fluency. And uh, yeah, having the certification helps you work. It can also get you preferential treatment if you want to immigrate to Japan. Okay. That'll yeah. definitely help you out. So these language schools... If you want to study full-time, they usually have four semesters per year. Each semester is about 10 weeks long. There are also, I think this is really cool, they have intensive courses that can take you from absolutely zero knowledge of Japanese to pretty much fluency in just a few months. Wow. 
because it's, I mean, it's super intensive. You're spending all day, every day thinking and speaking in Japanese and you're just completely immersed in it. I need to see if I can take like a sabbatical. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe once I retire or something, I'll finally have time to do that, but that would just be really cool. Yeah, that'd be great. A lot of hard work, but that'd be great. You when you get that level of it and you start like thinking in Japanese, then you really will start like picking it up. Yeah. Another popular form of schooling in Japan is vocational schools, similar to a junior college, you could say in America. Yeah, I saw them called junior colleges or professional training colleges or uh, in Japanese, senmon gakko. Yes. So basically, you could think of them as community colleges, right? They're similar to what we call community colleges in the U.S. Yeah, you can go learn a trade at one of these colleges. You can also do two years of schooling and then transfer on to a university. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of got either route you can take. Yeah, there's a diploma that you can get after around two years of training. If you want to do around three years, you can get what they call an advanced diploma, which you can actually use to get into graduate schools. And uh, I say around three years because it depends how quickly you choose to go through the program, I guess. And they have a variety of courses to choose from. You got agriculture, medical care, health, education and social welfare, business, apparel and homemaking, culture and general studies. I saw that sometimes foreign students choose these schools because they can specialize in like one industry. Like you can find these schools that teach game design or teach about the anime industry or teach about music. So if you're trying to get into those fields or you're interested in that part of the culture, you can go study that at these schools. Cool. Yeah. So one thing to know about these types of schools is that they can be a little bit limiting because as a foreigner if you get a diploma from one of these places you can only get a working visa for jobs in that specific field that you studied so you know if you decide later on that you want to change careers they can kind of close that possibility off to you okay and uh, a university degree doesn't have that same restriction so just something to keep in mind good to know And now we have a special guest on the podcast. Erin Miner is a friend of ours who studied in Japan in college. So we brought her in to get some insight into what that experience might be like. Welcome, Erin, and thanks for being on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. So I guess to start it off, do you want to just give kind of the who, why, what, and where, the basics? Uh, like I know you studied in Japan in college, but like how long were you there? How did that whole thing kind of happen? Well, I studied in Tokyo for one year from 2008 to 2009. It was a requirement for my degree. I think a lot of people, most of the time when you study abroad, it's just kind of for the experience. I went to McAllister College, so we were required to have one year study abroad experience under our belt for Bachelor of Arts degree in Japanese language and culture. Was that a requirement for any kind of language and culture degree? Do they always send you to like any country that you're studying? Uh, depending on what language courses you're taking, if you are 
getting a degree in Spanish, you would have to go to, I believe, some part of Spain for a year. I can't remember if it's two semesters or one. I believe it's one semester. But for my degree, we had to go for one year. Cool. Two of my friends who I met when studying abroad, their degrees had nothing to do with Japan or the Japanese language. It was just to get generals. A lot of people study abroad just for the experience, and then they just take elective courses at the international institution that they're studying abroad at. So it's case-by-case basis. Yeah. So you said you were studying Japanese culture and language already. How much did you know about Japan? Do you feel like you were prepared for living there with the culture every day? Um, I had completed my sophomore year of college before I studied abroad for my junior year. So I had a really good understanding of both the language and the culture beforehand. But you don't have to have an extensive knowledge of, of Japan or its language to study abroad there. One of my close friends had little to no practice or education in the language, and she just wanted to go because she was interested in the country. So it's not a prerequisite. You don't need to have any experience. And when you arrive, you have to take a language placement test to begin with to determine which Japanese level language course you're going to be in. So there's no pressure. It's anybody can go. That's cool. Yeah. Less pressure for a lot of people because it can be daunting if you don't know the language at all. So, yeah. So did everybody take some level of Japanese language classes when they were there? Um, You were required. You had to take one course in Japanese each semester, plus Hmm. an elective course that was Japan-based. It had a focus on Japan, and you had to take four courses total. So one language course, one Japan-focused course, and two elective courses that would go towards your degree back home at your home-based college. So did your college have a program with this other school, or did you have to set this up on your own? What was nice about my college was that they offered two programs to choose from. At the time when I was there, it could have, it could have expanded, it could have shrunk. I chose CIEE, which stands for Council on International Educational Exchange. And if you're lucky, you'll have a few options to choose from, and what will determine which program is a better fit for you will depend on your preferred location, the language study intensity level you'd prefer, your course workload. I chose CIEE because it was focused in Tokyo. And I believe the other course, they were based in Kyoto. So a big reason behind my decision was because of the location. And it wasn't Japanese language course intensive like the other program was. A lot of people go because they want to take on heavy, like a lot, the heavy loads of Japanese language courses. I wanted to go to experience what Japan had to offer while going to class. It was kind of like, you know, class secondary. I don't want to say that. That sounds bad too, but. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't want to have to study for eight hours every night after you got done with your classes. Yep. So did the availability of this kind of program have anything to do with your choice of college? Because, I mean, not every college has that type of program, right? My actual home-based college was St. Catherine University. And Mm. the college that offered study abroad programs was McAllister. And the only reason I was able to study abroad through the McAllister programs was because they had their own program called ACTC, which is the Adjoined Colleges of the Twin Cities. So I was able to take courses at another university because my main university didn't have those courses to take. And essentially, my college degree is actually through a different college than my home-based college. (laughs) So... (laughs) Hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I wasn't sure how that worked. 
if you have study abroad in mind before you go to college, I encourage you to research to make sure that it's offered because these programs are college-based, so you can't just sign up if you're not at that particular institution because Sophia University, where I went, does exchange programs through multiple different colleges and only through those. So you have to be prepared. You have to do your research. You have to make sure that it's something you can you can do. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like a really good advice for somebody thinking about that. You gotta you gotta plan that out a little bit ahead of time. Make sure it's possible. Yeah, it does take it takes a lot of preparation because you actually you have to apply to study abroad at least a good year, I'd say year and a half ahead of time. Hmm. Oh wow. Because of all the paperwork and the visas and you have to, just because you apply doesn't mean you're going to make it either. The college has to assess your application and essentially the international college decides whether or not you can study there. It's not just because you go to one of their affiliate study abroad program universities that you'll get in. Yeah. One thing I was curious about is like, we talked on the podcast uh, about how the semesters don't quite line up, like the school years aren't aren't the same in the U.S. and Japan. So how does, well, I guess you were there for a whole year, right? So you didn't really have to deal with coming back to the U.S. in the middle of the year? Uh, yes, I believe it varies depending on your home and your chosen international institution's academic schedules. I had to work around three because of my home college of St. Catherine, my McAllister College, and then Sophia University. So an academic year at McAllister was from September to May of the following year with a month off in January. And Sophia University, their autumn semester started in September, like McAllister, but it ended in July because there's a two-month spring vacation in between in February and March. So what ended up happening was I was able to attend Sophia University. I just had a shorter summer vacation before a new semester, a new academic year started at McAllister. So kind of if you're if you're going for one semester, I think you kind of have to juggle things around. Yeah, doing the year long made it easier, it seems. Yeah. So in general, what was school in Japan like? I mean, we're talking about there are a couple Japanese classes, you're taking some generals, but like the overall experience, how how did you perceive that? I learned once I was there that the course load in the classes were much easier than my courses back in the States. Um, in oh. a way, in a way, the level of importance put on studying and testing in Japan is flipped in comparison to the U.S. For example, entrance into a Japanese college requires extensive rigorous study and competitive entrance exams. So because of this, there's an extreme amount of pressure on high school students to study. But once you're admitted into a Japanese college, things tend to get much easier. Whereas in like the U.S., it's the opposite. We, of course, have to take entrance exams and raise our GPA to be admitted into the college of our choice. But once we do so, it gets it gets more difficult. The classes are harder and there's a larger course load. So that's one thing I learned when I was there. So it was, it was easy street. Kind of you could put more focus on experiencing Japan, too, while, there, while we're there. Like the CIEE encouraged us to participate in school activity groups, too. They want you to take your courses, but they also want you to go out and experience Tokyo or wherever you are in Japan. Yeah. Did you join any clubs or circles in your university? When I was there, I was told about the clubs and universities and I, I learned about the difference. I actually was so busy outside of my classes 
I didn't join any circles or clubs. I was so busy with my friends going to karaoke, um, going to isekayas. Yeah, you're living in the biggest city in the world. You got a lot out there to explore. I right. Imagine. Like yeah. well, I was there for a full year and I didn't get to experience everything that there was to do. There was just so much to do, yeah. so little time. And they encouraged joining circles because that was a good way to meet new people because it's more yeah. laid back and less competitive. Whereas clubs, clubs at Japanese universities are harder to get into, I think, for international exchange students because there's a huge emphasis on they're just like college uh, American college sports teams or competitive musical or academic teams. They require serious practice, participation, uh. dedication. It's a huge commitment. And a lot of us international exchange students were pointed more towards like the more relaxed circles where it was about social get togethers, drinking parties, day trips. Clubs yeah. were more, they were university authorized groups. So there was a, heavy emphasis on competitions. I had a friend who actually joined the traditional Japanese archery club, uh, Kudo. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, she she was accepted, but she was so busy with the club responsibilities and her classes, she barely got to go do anything else. And oh. most of the clubs have like age-specific hierarchy customs. Like they use honorific language. They don't speak English. They speak Japanese and they expect... Like senpai, kohai, you're expected to use appropriate kegel. And <laughs> yeah, that would be tough, I think. I mean, if you weren't studying the language specifically and you weren't really familiar with it, that could be, you could get into a lot of embarrassing situations, I imagine. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they take, it's extremely serious because there's a lot of rivalries between the top colleges. So mm. they compete against other universities. And they don't, yeah. you know, if you're not going to be serious, if you're not going to put in the time, if you're not going to be dedicated, you know, if you're there for fun, that's fine. But maybe clubs aren't for you. And yeah. that's not a bad thing. You know, I respect that. It's a it's a huge cultural, like, I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's really cool how serious they take it. Yeah. That's yeah. nice, though, that then they have the circles as the other option. If you want just some laid back, make friends and hang out. So you can have it either way. That's really cool. Yeah. So I'm wondering, like, the people that you're hanging out with and, you know, going out drinking or whatever, are these groups with both American and Japanese people? Or did the American students kind of mostly stick together? Or how much, like, mixing was there? Uh, for my group, we, when we arrived in Japan, our orientation was almost a week long. And the nice thing about CIEE is that it's not a huge group of people. We had, we had a small group. We all knew each other's names and we all kind of formed our friendships in the very beginning, in that first week of orientation. But that didn't stop us from making friends with Japanese students. A lot of the volunteers for CIEE were Japanese students, and they would help us acclimate, find our classes, um, answer our questions. And I made a lot of friends on campus who later went on trips with us, and a lot of times they would help us if we had questions booking hotels. And a lot of times they would kind of be I don't want to say tour guides, but they would teach us new things. So uh, what were the living arrangements like? Did they set you up in a dorm or an apartment or something? When you apply to the program, you're sent a questionnaire about your preferred living arrangements. You have a choice between dorm life or a homestay with a host family. I uh -huh, chose cool. homestay. We met our host family after our orientation field trips a few days after, about a week or so after we arrived, and we had a welcoming ceremony 
And then we kind of, we, we were so used to being around these new friends that we made at the beginning. We finally just split up and we went off to our, where we were going to live for the next year, for the next semester. And my host family consisted of, I had my host mom and my host dad. And then I had three host sisters. So yeah, did you enjoy that experience? Did you like get to eat meals with the family and kind of have that Japanese family experience? That was one of the main reasons I wanted to live with a host family. Homestay, we were in charge of lunch, but our host family would provide us breakfast and dinner. And my host mom made everything from scratch. Her dinner was amazing. I wanted to get her recipes. It was always, it was just, <laughs> wow. <laughs> she made her own kimchi, which I know is, it's Korean, but oh. yeah, they, how do you want to describe it? They were so supportive. They were amazing. They were so kind. They went out of their way to help you in any with anything you needed. Like they celebrated my birthday. They threw me a party. They gave me gifts. Oh, that's nice. Um, for Christmas, we exchanged Christmas gifts. They actually have a cabin out in the country. And so on some weekends, we'd go out and we'd go stay at their cabin. And they had their own like, I don't, I don't want to say onsen, but they had they they had their own onsen. So I, wow, I could do that. that's cool. Well, I was out there. <laughs> that's so awesome. Did you guys have a uh, fried chicken for Christmas? We talked about how that was a tradition. <laughs> I, I was wondering, did they get a Christmas cake? Oh, that's, yeah, that too. Yep, fried chicken is the traditional Japanese meal, but Christmas is more, well, I think I'm getting this mixed up. New Year's, I think in Japan is more for family and Christmas is for couples. I don't think there's right. a huge, yeah. Yeah. you know, there wasn't a huge emphasis. I actually, for Christmas day, I was actually up in Hokkaido in Sapporo with my friends. Because they okay, wanted a white cool. Christmas. I'm from Minnesota. It wasn't a big deal to me. I've been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they had never experienced a white Christmas. So we went up there for Christmas. And then when I came back, we kind of had like our own little, you know, family Christmas together. And then New Year's, we I can't remember. New Year's, we went to a temple. But yeah, that's important. You got to get in that first uh, temple visit of the year. Yep. <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun. I just, it's, it's been so long, like everything just kind of meshes together. I'm trying to remember. I wish I had kept a journal. They told us to keep a journal and I, oh yeah, you know, I was oh, so yeah, busy. Cool. You're so exhausted by the end of the day. Like you just need to get that eight hours when you can. <laughs> yeah. I feel like these days I would want to bring like a camera along and just film every second of the whole thing, you know? <laughs> you would. You would. <laughs> I would. I do that kind of thing. That's what's so nice about iPhones now. Like, I went back in, you know, 2008, and I used an actual, like, physical camera to take pictures. So not only... <laughs> yeah. And so it would have been easier nowadays. Like, everything can be documented. And I, you know, I tried my best back then. I actually had an authentic, like, I had a Japanese cell phone. The flip phones, like, back when they had Japanese cell phones. Now everybody has iPhones. But yeah, like it's so much easier now to capture all the memories. And it was only 10 years ago, but it seems like such a huge technological difference. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So it sounds like you, I mean, you were familiar enough with the culture that, you know, you probably adjusted pretty easily to it. Did you hear about any maybe other exchange students that might have had some trouble with the Japanese culture, like a culture shock sort of situation, anything like that? Well... <laughs> It was exciting and daunting and nerve-wracking all at the same time, being in a new country, completely different lifestyle. And I think everybody experiences culture shock in their own way when they first arrive. You get mm -hmm. swept up in the new surroundings, the sensory overload with all the sights and the sounds and the massive amount of people walking around. You get used to it, but you have to be kind to yourself. It's natural to get overwhelmed and 
what's nice about CIEE was that the first few days we received orientation and we were taught ways to understand and handle and to recognize culture shock. Oh, we, they gave us the tools to better acclimate to our surroundings. And they discussed with us that it's the four stages of culture shock. They actually had a graph. They went over it with us and they reassured us that these emotions are normal. And this is what you typically see when you study abroad. And funny enough, they told us that it takes about a year when you're studying abroad to finally adjust to everything. Huh. And then by that time, you're going back home. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Wow. I'd never really heard about like stages of culture shock or any details that deep about it. Yeah, I feel like you kind of have to relearn like how to live your life in a new way. Yeah. You do. Everything's new. The The living situation, especially if you're in a dorm, I think it's a little more relaxed. But if you're living with a family, there's new rules, there's new expectations, there's like cultural norms, there's certain behavior to adhere to. They, you know, they expect a certain amount of respect. And it's it's a lot of time adjustment because the commuting is intense. Uh, Sofia University is located in Yotsuya. And I was lucky enough that Mitaka wasn't that far of a train ride. I only had to take the Chuosen a few stops. But I also, to get to the train station, I had to walk to the bus stop and then I had to take a 20 to 30 minute bus ride. And then I finally got on the train <laughs> and I was one of the closer students to oh, campus. Wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, some of my friends had like 90 minute commutes and they had to transfer trains. They had you know, oh, different no. lines. Yep. That sounds terrible. Did you, uh, <laughs> did you have to travel during rush hour too? And they're, you know, packing people into the train. Yes. The white gloves, the, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> they actually, I don't know if they started around the time I was there, but they have like the female only cars. So mm, yeah. depending, but they're yeah, only I've never seen those. They're only attached to certain ones, and how often do those come? You know, right, right. But um, to avoid that, I always picked later courses. I was always mindful of when my classes started, so that I didn't have to get up like you know early, early with all the other salary men or all the other you know students from like high schools because it was just too much. I was I would just stand there and wait until it would slow down because I mean sometimes you don't have a choice and you have to, and it's. I mean, I'm lucky. I only had a few stops, but it was still, it's like, it's so draining. And during typhoon season, it is so hot. And oh, yeah. you'll walk out fresh, clean, showered, and you'll just be all hot and sweaty by the time you get to the train station. And it just doesn't, <laughs> doesn't matter oh, anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. So if any of our listeners want to study in Japan, what, what's like the biggest piece of advice you could give to somebody? There's a few things like what we discussed, culture shock and homesickness is a given. So... Be kind to yourself when you feel frustrated or overwhelmed. It's natural. It's expected. Be prepared to dedicate hours of your day to commuting in busy, packed trains. And, you know, you'll get used to the maps. They seem daunting, confusing at first, but you'll adjust and it'll just become second nature to you. Like a few months in, I was just like, it was robotic. It was just kind of like, it becomes natural. So uh, also I recommend... Being open to trying new things, to participate in more activities if they're offered to you. Travel as much as you can. We went so many places. CIEE hosts trips, first and second semester. So we actually take bullet trains to different locations. We went to Hiroshima. We went to Kyoto. I went to Hokkaido with my friends. We also went to Guam during the summer break. Oh, cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's, I had friends who... Some of them went to South Korea. 
Some of them went to mainland China. I mean, you don't have to go out of the country, but there's there's so many things to see and do. Just in Tokyo alone, if you can get outside of Tokyo, that's great too, but just be open to it. CIEE offered volunteering opportunities where you could go teach elementary school students English. So we got to go see traditional elementary schools and talk with students. And, you know, it's a really cool experience. It's just kind of, you know, take a chance, try it. I was the most, honestly, I was so introverted my first few years of college. And then I went to Japan, came back completely, completely different person. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of those tips sound like they could also apply maybe a lot of it is like the same kind of stuff that you face as a tourist, you know, just on a on a much larger scale. Like, you know, that tip about being kind to yourself, that's a good thing to keep in mind because I had a lot of embarrassing moments on some of my trips, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's just those things that you come time. across. It, it happens. And I think, especially in Tokyo, where they have a lot of international students or um, employees, they're used to it and they, they don't, you know, it happens. What's really nice is that the people there are so kind and, you know, they won't make fun of you. They encourage when you speak to them in Japanese, they get really excited. Yeah, I mean, you you learn things too. Like there's a lot of different cultural differences. Like I had to get used to shoving. Here in the States, it's considered like it's rude. It's perceived as aggressive. But in Japan, like people need to get where they need to go. They don't have anything against you. It's not to be mean. It's just... It's day-to-day life. And so, like, it's a cultural thing that you, ha- you have to get used to. Is this on the train you're talking about? Like, if you need to get out at a certain stop or something? Trains, train stations. Like, there's so many people. And, like, people stand around, too. You've got to navigate your way through. And it's just shoving's just, it's normal. Yeah, yeah. You know, you got to get where you're going. And there's people just standing in the middle of the sidewalk. You just got to get through them. Right, exactly. It's nothing personal. It's not seen as rude. It's just kind of like, oh, okay, I see, I see you. You're doing your thing. Like, totally fine. Interesting. Yeah. And you also have to adjust to a lot of things too, like um, rainy season. Oh, my God. Umbrellas. I'm five foot six. I'm taller than I think the average girl, but I'm right at umbrella height. <laughs> and I had to make sure I didn't lose an eye a lot of the yeah. time. <laughs> you know, so it's experience. You have a new respect, a new appreciation for different cultures. Well, it sounds like an amazing experience, and I'm a little sad that I didn't get to do something like that in my college years. But uh, so it sounds like you—is this something that you would definitely recommend to people? Yes, 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 yes. If you have the opportunity, take it. I wish I could have stayed longer. I could have stayed there forever. Honestly, I consider it my second home. It's where my second family is. It's where a bunch of my friends are. Honestly, living and studying in Japan was one of the best years of my life. It was an emotional roller coaster, but at the same time, my experience was overwhelmingly positive. There were rough patches, but those were so small in comparison. Like, I can't encourage you enough to just take the leap, do it. If you can, go. (laughs) Honestly, I don't regret it. I made two of my closest best friends from there. That's awesome. We still stay in contact. I have a friend from California and I have a friend from Hong Kong. I've been to both of their weddings. You know, our lives go on after the trip, but we're still a part of each other's lives afterwards. You know, it's just kind of, you make these really deep connections and they stay with you. That's awesome. Do you still keep in touch with your host family too? Yes. Thank God for social media. (laughs) Um, I went to Japan a few years ago and I met back up. I met up with my host mom and we had lunch and I... Got to go see my host, my oldest host sister, who's now married 
has their own apartment and has three kids. Wow. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, you're making us all jealous that we did not take advantage of those opportunities when For we were real. younger. Yeah. Well, it's never too late. I, you know, you're never too late old to go to college. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> My friend is actually back there in college, but he's doing like a, oh, what is it? It's not like an internship where I think you have to win like a scholarship and you do studying like mm. projects. So he's back and living in Tokyo again. He went to the same college as me. Cool. So, I mean, I'd like to go back there and work someday. That would be amazing. If I could, if I had the money, I'd go back and study, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, tough to live as a student forever. Yeah. yeah. Especially in Tokyo. Cause oh my gosh, it is expensive, but I could live off of konbini food. Like <laughs> amazing. It's, it's some good stuff. Yep. I think Jason would be in heaven if he got to live off konbini food every day. <laughs> just give me, just give me a little like blanket on the floor in the back corner of the konbini, and I'll just, I'll never leave the building. Right by the onigiri. Exactly. It's, it, yep, <laughs> it's amazing. It's like restaurant food here. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any more questions, Jason? No, I think that's a lot of good stuff. We had a listener that uh, that was planning on studying in Japan, so they actually requested this episode and. You know, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your experience with us. I hope our listeners got some good stuff from that. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I mean, I feel like I understand how that all works better now myself. Yeah, definitely. Good. I'm glad I could help. It's it's hard to put into words. All I can say is just do it. Just if you can, you won't regret it. It's one of those experience of a lifetimes. Exactly. It's an experience of a lifetime. You're never going to be able to experience student life in another country any other way now we should probably talk about working in japan yeah because there are a bunch of ways that you could work in japan if you wanted to so we've already talked about being a student in japan can you work to make some extra cash to help you pay for your expenses you can yeah you'll need to get a little extra something to make that work though so if you're a student in Japan, that student visa alone doesn't allow you to work in Japan. You need to get a work permit. But it's easy. It's not, it's not difficult. You can even get it right when you enter the country. There's just an extra form that you need to fill out at immigration. But if you're already in Japan and you want to add on that work permit, then you'll have to go to an immigration office and do it there. It can be, you know, it'll take a little bit more time than doing it right when you enter the country. But either way, both of these forms are available online, easy to find, not too difficult. Yep. And it's only going to allow you to work a set number of hours each week. Up to uh, 28 hours a week as a student. Yeah. So, I mean, that's decent. And hopefully as a student, you don't need to work more than that because it's hard being a student. Mm -hmm. There is another restriction on that too, though. What's that? Unfortunately, you're not allowed to be involved in the adult entertainment business in any way. Isn't that a shame? Yeah, that's too bad. That means you can't work at bars, host or hostess clubs. You can't even work at video game arcades. What? I know. That seems like what? kind of the perfect job for a student, you know? Wait, why is this again? Adult entertainment? Arcades are considered the adult entertainment industry? Apparently. I think they just, they don't want international students... To be involved in things that could even be perceived as unsavory. You know what I mean? I suppose. 
Pachinko parlors. Makes sense. Love hotels. Got it. Yeah, sure. Adult goods stores. Okay. Massage parlors. Mm, yeah, I guess. Etc. Okay. <laughs> Whatever else we decide later on. Yeah. Okay. Leaving themselves open well, makes I, sense. I'm saying etc. I don't. Oh, yeah. I don't have a full list. They, but you know, they probably leave it up the, up to their discretion. Man, no bar though. That that hurts. Yeah. A lot of people are bartenders in college, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, if you are looking for a job and you are a foreigner, one good place that I've heard a lot about is gaijinpot.com. You heard about that one, Paul? No. A gaijin is a, you know, the Japanese word for foreigner. So gaijinpot.com has a, a bunch of listings. It's basically just a place where they have tons of resources for foreigners in Japan. So, okay, okay. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, for the record, no working on a tourist visa, strictly prohibited. So if you're just visiting Japan, you can't work. That's right. Now, if you don't speak any Japanese, one great option for working in Japan, which I mentioned at the very beginning, is the JET program. It stands for the Japan Exchange Teaching Program. So a lot of people do this right after college because you need a college degree to do it, for one thing. And basically, you just go help teach English to kids in a school in Japan. This is probably like the, the easiest way, I feel like, to get to Japan and work. If you just want to experience the culture, spend a year or two there. It's a government program, so everything's kind of set up for you. Everything's official. Yep, definitely. I mean, when I was first getting into Japan back in the day, a ton of the info I got was from people in the JET program that had blogs or posted videos. That's how I learned about Japanese culture. All these people were JETs. So you just go there and you're an assistant language teacher. So you're not like a head teacher of any class. You're just helping out. They call you alt for the assistant language teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like kind of a cool gig. Everyone seems to have a lot of fun with it. You get to enjoy. You know, not everyone ends up in Tokyo. So you get out and you just get to like, learn this city and become part of the community. Yeah. Some people I've heard can be disappointed if they're expecting to be in a big city like Tokyo and they end up out in rural Japan in some little town. (laughs) Honestly, to me, that sounds awesome. Right, right. But uh, yeah, if you want to do this, you'll need to have an excellent grasp on English, of course. That's kind of your whole role there is to be the guy guy or gal that uh, speaks English really well. And you could be assigned to an elementary, junior high, or senior high school to help out. Yeah, and I didn't know this, but I saw that there's a small number of people working in this program that actually end up working as interpreters or translators as well. Mm. Yeah, there are some Maybe if other... you know Japanese. Right. So if you're fluent in Japanese, you can become what they call a coordinator for international relations. And in that role... You might do more administrative stuff, planning, exchange activities, that kind of thing. So, like the the alt assistant language teaching thing is kind of your if you don't entry know level thing, yeah, yeah. And and you can, you know, from there you might get experience that you can use other places, or you could move into other positions in in the program. Now, if you don't go through JET, there are other programs for teaching English as well. But like I said, JET is kind of considered the best because they pay 
relatively well and because it's run by the government. Yeah, it's just set up like you'll you'll just get set up easily, mm-hmm. more easily there. Yeah. And JET doesn't require you to have any teaching credentials whatsoever. You don't need a teaching degree or anything or even a certificate. You just need, you know, at least a bachelor's in, in any field. Yeah, and English fluency. Right. That's it. You're good. Right. So they'll train you and all that, but other English teaching programs might require you to have a teaching certification, which, you know, it's an extra step, but it's not super hard to get. You could do that in less than a year or even as little as a month if you have the time to devote to just getting through that training quickly. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of private language schools in Japan that teach English. Some of it specializing towards business people. Japanese business people are trying to learn better English. Some of it for students trying to do better in school because English is a subject in Japanese school that everyone has to do. Um, So there's a ton of opportunities for like these private schools that do small classes that'll hire you for a pretty high dollar an hour amount usually. But uh, they might not set you up as much. You might be a little bit more on your own, like getting adjusted or have less of a crew to hang out with. Right. And I've heard, I mean, you kind of need to be careful and vet the company that you're applying to because... Yeah, I mean, like anywhere yeah. else in the world, there are always companies that are running a little, a little <laughs> more shady kind of business yep, than yep. other ones. Maybe they're looking to take advantage of you. So, you know, just do your research is all I'm saying. Yeah. There's places that'll hire you as a private tutor too, that will set you up for one-on-one lessons with people and you just go around doing that all day. There's also just public schools that'll hire outside of the JET program, but that's maybe more of like, you're actually like a certified teacher in charge of teaching a class versus the alt that just kind of goes around between a couple schools helping out each class once a week or something. Mm -hmm. Now, if you enter Japan on the JET program or you start teaching at one of these other programs, you know, it is possible to like jump around to other companies after you do your first year. You might find better opportunities And there might be opportunities that open up as you get more experience, you know. You could even, I mean, there are people that spend big chunks of their lives jumping around anywhere in the world teaching English. You know, once you have experience teaching English, you don't need to know the language of whatever country you're teaching in. You just need to know how to teach English. So you could go teach in the rest of Asia or the Middle East even. I've heard that as a thing, but to me it sounds like a pretty... Stressful lifestyle, I guess. It takes an adventurous kind of person to make that work, you know? Yeah. I mean, my brother did about five years in South Korea and two years in China. Yeah. I was really impressed that he did that. And he loved it. He really loved it. I think he often wishes he was back there, probably. Yeah, I was talking to him about that the other day. So one thing to keep in mind, if you know, if that kind of lifestyle sounds at all appealing to you, is that it's possible to kind of pigeonhole yourself a little bit if you're not careful. You know, if you're planning on starting a career back in your home country, but you spend a couple years teaching English in Japan, when you come back to your home country, you might start out a little bit behind your fellow graduates. True, but you got to try to keep the right mindset of, my career is going to be 40 whatever years two years behind in the long run is it's going to seem less of a big deal 15 years from now than it does right now. 
Definitely, definitely. I don't want to scare people away because of that, but it's just something that I think is worth mentioning. Yep. Because I've heard that, you know, some employers might wonder if you're going to be as good as somebody, a fresh graduate, or if you're going to be as committed, you know, maybe they're worried you're going to jump off to some other you country You just got to spin it the right way. Hey, I'm bilingual. Assuming you learned Japanese in your time in Japan. And assuming that's valuable to them at all. It's generally looked on as a, not a bad thing, at least. Anyways. Yeah. But if you decide to teach English long term, I have heard about quite a few people that teach in Japan for years and years, but then eventually they just hit a wall. You know, they realize there's a limit to how much money they can make teaching English. And they know, they finally realize like they're never really going to feel like they're accepted in Japanese society. You know, you're, you're always going to be a foreigner. Yeah. And, by the time some of these people decide to leave and go back to their home country, it's really rough reintegrating because you've just been away for so long and you have kind of a specific skill set that it might, it might be hard to find a place to apply that. I had a keyboarding teacher in high school. Keyboarding? Yeah, keyboarding. Oh, like uh, typing. Typing, yep. And he spent, I can't remember, something like 30 years teaching English in Japan. Wow. Like he was easily in his 50s. And he had like recently come back to America and was like in his second year or something of teaching in America, hmm. like still trying to get tenure, you know? Yeah. Uh, he was a good teacher, though, and a really fun guy. And he seemed like he didn't regret it. And he really like enjoyed all of his time there. But I don't know, you know, eventually you get to a point where maybe you want to come home. Yeah. Yeah, and again, I'm not trying to scare anybody off. You know, I'm sure it's, it's possible to have a great life, you know, doing that kind of stuff. I'm just saying... I'm not trying to scare you off. I guess it's possible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's not the best way to phrase it, perhaps. I'm just saying, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm more of a cautious person, but... Maybe. <laughs> I'm definitely a more cautious person, but, uh, you know, it's just good to know what you're, uh, what you're getting into. Sure. You got to have that thrill of not Man. knowing what's coming next. I feel like this is maybe the first time on the podcast that like our personal approaches to life have really like clashed in an episode like this. You know what I mean? I do. I do. We're very, it, it totally, we're very much coming against, against each other in that respect right now. Yeah. Like we're definitely showing our, our true personalities and our, our outlooks on life. That's why we're PB and J. We're two separate, awesome things. And when you put us together, it blows your mind. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so what do we got if you don't want to teach? Well, if you don't want to teach, and maybe you're not super fluent in Japanese, there are other jobs that don't require a ton of Japanese. For example, IT professional. Okay, yeah, you can never have enough good IT people. Yeah, you just need to speak the language of the computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so software engineering and that kind of stuff is in demand, of course, in Japan. And you usually don't need a ton of Japanese to be a desirable candidate. You probably won't make as much money as you would in your home country. Sure. But, of course, if living in Japan is valuable to you, it could totally be worth it. Uh, another possibility is the military. There are 23, uh, this is mostly for Americans that I'm talking about. There are 23 U.S. military bases in Japan, and they house around 50,000 military personnel. So you could be one of those people if you want. 
I've never been in the military myself, but I've heard you can request where you want to serve. Um, I don't think there are any guarantees. No, there's never a guarantee. And, you know, if things are happening, you might go somewhere. But if you sign up for a four-year tour, you got a decent shot at getting a year or two in Japan if you really want it. Mm-hmm. My grandpa told me a really great story once where he got drafted right after World War II because they still needed a bunch of people to, like, occupy and whatever. He got stationed up in Alaska at a radar station just mm. in the middle of nowhere. So I think he got for he got drafted for a two-year duty. So right after he hit one year in Alaska, he wrote his congressman saying, oh, I would just really love to spend time. I don't even know where he said, like, Hawaii. I would just love to go to Hawaii. It seems like a great place. Could you put in a word for me? And his congressman got him transferred to Hawaii. So to get transferred, you had to go through your home base, which for him was in northern Minnesota. He got back to his home base, and they're trying to transfer him out to Hawaii. And he goes up to his senior officer, and he pulls out like the handbook or whatever and says, regulations say you can't be transferred away from your home base if you have less than one year left of service. And he was just past that. So he just got to chill like 20 minutes outside of his hometown at the base for like the last 11 months of his service time. Was that the plan the whole time? Yeah, that was the plan the whole time. That's genius. I know. And (laughs) And he just pulled it off. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that only would have happened back when that happened. Like these days, if you wrote to your congressman about... You know, where you were stationed, I, I can't imagine them caring or responding or anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. You get like a form letter back. Yeah. Thanks for reaching out. We really appreciate your... <laughs> yeah. I'll have an intern look at that and uh, you know, we'll see what we can do. Anyways. That's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah, right? I, lo- I quite enjoyed that when I heard it. Yeah. You know, on a couple of my trips to Japan, I ran into some U.S. military people. Oh, yeah. You'll, you'll see them around, yeah. especially in Okinawa, right? Yeah. They seemed like cool guys, and they seemed like, uh, I don't know, they were enjoying themselves, I guess, with their free time in Japan anyway. No one knows how to enjoy themselves like uh, military guys that have a weekend off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there was another guy that I met in, uh, in Sendai. He was stationed in Okinawa. That was on a different trip. I guess I ran into military people on three of my four Japan trips. Okay. That you know of. Yeah. I saw a job when I was looking around that like almost made me quit my job and head to Japan today. And it wasn't even that good of a job. And like maybe if this was 10 years ago, it would have happened. But it was just a job posting for working in a warehouse of a company that like ships anime and manga overseas. <laughs> And they just need someone that like speaks and reads English and you don't really need to know much Japanese. Nice. And they're, they're only paying you like 10 to 13 bucks an hour or something. Plenty. Uh, but I was like, oh man, I would just share an apartment with one of the other guys that works there and just yeah. go out and enjoy the heck out of Japan. Where did you see this job? I found some website with Japanese jobs on it. I don't remember mm. what it was. You know, I watched a video on YouTube not too long ago where a Japanese guy that had just graduated laid out his whole budget and like how much he was making and what he could afford and that kind of thing. Yeah. And it looks like apartments 
in Tokyo, even right in the middle of Tokyo are decently affordable. Like this guy was paying the equivalent of like $600, 600 US dollars a month for his apartment. And you know, they're going to be smaller. Japanese residences are generally smaller, yeah, especially it's gonna be like in a studio Tokyo. apartment with yeah. a half kitchen or something. Yeah. But I've never seen a place in recent years here that you could live for that price. Yeah. They just don't make that type of stuff here. Yeah. I wish they did. Yep. But you know, whatever. Yep. Well, okay, so I do have some jobs for people that do speak Japanese, too. Okay. So, translator is maybe the most obvious one. And most of these jobs are actually in the gaming industry. They need to be able to translate, you know, video games to other languages. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, that could be fun. And All uh, your bases are belong to us. They don't want that stuff happening anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you can translate, you can also look for freelance work if your visa allows for that. So you can kind of supplement your income that way. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, engineering. These are some of the best paying jobs for foreigners in Japan, but at least some of them are going to require high proficiency in the language. We're going to need to communicate effectively to be able to design things, I suppose. Makes sense. Yeah. And uh, it looks like most of these jobs are in the automobile industry. Okay. International sales is a possibility. Uh, you know, Japanese companies need people that can sell to people in other countries. So hey, I could do that, but I don't speak Japanese. Huh? Yeah. Banking is a possibility. Another industry also that looks for IT people. Hey, banking. I, I do work in banking. And actually, I've looked. My company does have offices in Japan. Oh, really? I could apply to. I don't know if there's any possibility of actually getting selected, but... Doesn't hurt to try. It would be pretty cool. Uh, the service industry is also something you could do. Most of these jobs are probably going to be in places with a lot of international tourists. Yeah. So speaking Japanese and English works out well for that. Yeah. And these jobs probably won't pay all that well, you know, service industry generally yep, yep. doesn't, but it's there if that's what you want to do. Yeah. It's about the experience, not about the money. Yes. So you need a visa to enter Japan and you need a certain right type of visa to be able to work in Japan or study in Japan. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about visas a little bit. Yeah, and there are a bunch of different types of visas. Yeah, there are like, a bunch. A lot. So we're just going to kind of cover some of the more common ones. There might be ones that are more applicable to certain situations, but we're going to cover the most common ones. Yeah. So there's a short-term stay visa. This is the one that you get as a tourist in Japan. It allows you to stay for up to 90 days, but as Paul mentioned earlier, you can't work with this visa. So yep. It's just for visiting. So fortunately for us in the United States, we are on the list of countries where you don't need to apply for this visa. It's just automatic. So, you know, you show up, you get off the airplane, you go to customs and they stamp your passport. No yep. big deal. There's over 50 countries where you just need a passport and you can get in for the 90 days. If you're from another country that's not on that list... You'll have to apply for the visa ahead of time. So, you know, just look into that if you're not sure if you're on the list or not. What if you want to study in Japan, Paul? What kind of visa do you need for that? Well, you obviously need a student visa. That would make a lot of sense. 
Foreign students in Japan need the student visa in order to study in Japan. Visa applicants require an educational institution as their sponsor um, in order to obtain that visa. And uh, you need sponsorship from the institution, and you need proof of sufficient funds to cover your expenses during your stay. And this type of visa can last anywhere from six months up to two years, depending on how long you plan to study. And they're renewable. So if you wanted to do a four-year degree, you can renew once your first two years is up. Yep. And uh, it sounds like you want to start working on getting this type of visa in advance. I saw it can take around six months to get it. Yeah, visa stuff can go really slow sometimes. Yeah. Bureaucracy, you know? Yeah. Um, Your school will be able to help you. You know, that's probably the main place you want to go to get this process started. Yep. And uh, as I mentioned before, there's that work permit that you can add on to the student visa that will allow you to work for up to 28 hours a week. Now, if you want to work long-term in Japan, you'll need a work visa. And there are a bunch of different types of work visas depending on what exactly you're doing. So there are visas for engineers, skilled laborers, business managers, professors, artists, etc. It's all, they got all these specific ones. So the details will depend on your exact situation. But whichever one you're getting, you, you're going to be registering your address with your residence's municipal office, and then you get a residence card, and you have to carry that with you at all times as yep. a foreign resident. Yeah, you usually need a university degree or considerable professional experience in the applicable field to be able to qualify for one of these work visas. Yeah. Um, if you do get one, you can bring your spouse and children with you on what's called dependent visas. So you can bring your family with you. So that's nice. Uh, your dependents are not allowed to work, though, but they can apply for special permits to be able to work part time possibly through the immigration office. So the last type of visa I want to talk about is the working holiday visa. And this is a pretty cool program. I didn't really realize how this worked before doing my research, but basically this is a special program that Japan has set up that allows foreigners to come work for up to 12 months. And it depends on what country you're coming from. They have separate agreements with each country. But generally, you need to be between 18 and 30 years old. You need to be primarily in Japan on holiday. So working can't be your only reason for being in the country. You need sufficient funds to cover your expenses at the beginning of the stay. And then you need a way to get home. So either a plane ticket back or funds to buy a ticket to get back. You cannot have any dependent children with you. And you must not have previously entered Japan on a working holiday visa. So this is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, literally. Yeah, so it's like basically you could take a year after high school or a year after college to just go spend a year in Japan. And you can like work a little bit here or there to make a couple bucks, but you're mostly just exploring and enjoying a year off in another country. Yeah, that's so cool. Can't do it, unfortunately, if you're from the USA. We are not one of the countries that has uh, this relationship with them. Really? I didn't realize that. I missed that, I guess. Well, we're also over 30, so we wouldn't be able to do it anyway. Right, right. Our ship has sailed on this one. Yeah. 
Oh, and another thing, like the student work permit, you can't work in any, quote, businesses which may impact public morals. Okay, yeah, same thing, same you know? thing. But man, that does sound like a pretty awesome opportunity. Yeah, that's really cool. That's a really cool thing. Well, that's all I got, Paul. I think it's time to wrap it up. All right. Well, if you are planning to study or work in Japan or both, I wish you the best of luck. And I hope you just have an amazing experience because that just sounds really awesome. Take a bunch of pictures and tag us on Instagram so we can see them. Yeah. If there's anybody out there that is already working or studying in Japan, let us know how it's going. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll read your email on the podcast so uh, other people can get a sense of what to expect. Yeah, are you in that 90%? Is this a great experience for you? Yeah. Well, if you want to see some pictures of Japanese stuff so you can find out what you could be experiencing, check out our Instagram. We are at SJP Podcast. Our website is sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. And if you are going to Japan as a tourist, be sure to check out our travel tools page. You can find a link to, uh, to get a JR pass that'll help you get all over the country there. Mm-hmm. And Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about the city of Nico. Fun. I was supposed to go to Nico on my last trip, and then it rained a lot, and I decided to stay in Tokyo. But uh, I've already done a bit of research on, <laughs> on Nico for my trip. So uh, there's a lot of cool stuff, a lot of like history and uh, nature and fun stuff to see. So Yeah, you'll get there next time. Yeah, definitely. All right, well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.